welcome back to the Criminology for You podcast. I'm Helen Price. And I'm Becca Lines. We're so thrilled with the positive response to the last podcast. And we actually had a few people asking about further reading they could do or who were interested in kind of reading our source papers. So we've got a little Instagram page at Criminology for You. And we'll put a list of sources and some reading suggestions up when we publish each episode. So today we're looking at the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. And I actually came to this in quite um, a roundabout way, um, because when I was doing my undergrad, um, when Mm -hmm. I was doing my bachelor's in in the US, I had a wonderful professor, Jay Gitlin, who was a very upper class, um, older white man, but he was lovely, very, very supportive of his um, women students and had really pushed for greater diversity at Yale and that sort of thing. And he became kind of a mentor to me. Mm. And um, when um, he went on a trip to Canada um, over one winter break, he brought a book back for me as a present that was called Remembering Women Murdered by Men, (laughs) which I thought was, you know, very like wholesome and um, lovely and, you know, a very nice like gesture of him. And that's how I kind of learned about the epidemic of, Mm. of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. I think it's something that a lot of people in the UK maybe haven't heard about or don't appreciate the scale of? Mm, no, d- no, definitely not for me. Um, I've kind of only heard about it in the last few months from you, even though it's been going on for years, really. Just to start off, I think um, before we get into the uh, missing and, and murdered Indigenous women, I think it's important to understand the background of how Indigenous people have been treated in Canada mm. since it was first um, <laughs> settled, invaded, whatever you want to say, um, by, yeah. by white people. Um, so also just in terms of the terminology, so mm-hmm. typically the terms that are used to refer to Indigenous people in Canada are Indigenous or Aboriginal or First Nations. Mm-hmm. And I'll mostly use Indigenous in this podcast, but then some research papers do use Aboriginal, so I'll just follow their lead when I'm referring to, to the different papers and things okay. like that. So essentially, no surprise here, there's a long history of Indigenous communities being treated absolutely terribly by the Canadian government. So from the late 1700s until, until the early 1900s, there were loads of policies that were aimed at forced assimilation. So there were sanctions for people who didn't convert to Christianity uh-huh. and they forced um, nomadic groups to become sedentary. Uh, they banned traditional dress. There was a pass system that was designed to keep indigenous people on reservations and stop uh-huh. them mixing with white people. Uh-huh. And then from the mid 1800s or so, there was a really large network of residential schools Mm -hmm. and basically indigenous children were forcibly removed from their families and they were put in these schools that aimed to to remove them from their own culture and their language and impose white canadian culture essentially Mm -hmm. and these schools often had really terrible conditions Mm -hmm. there were very high rates of abuse and a lot of that has kind of come out in the last in the last decade. A lot of mm. people speaking out about the abuse they experienced in these residential schools, and just generally there was very little oversight over them. Mm. Um, so you said that was the early eighteen hundreds. So I guess that was kind of along with social reform movements in England and in America and stuff, which um, kind of aimed to give children an education, but under very um, problematic lines, very sort of. Um, disparaging of poor people and um racist and um yeah absolutely just trying to impose Mm. a certain set of cultural norms and Mm. like infantilize um 
uh, like marginalized communities mm. and try and like remove their culture. Um, mm. And actually the last residential school in Canada didn't close until 1996. Wow. Um, so while the residential schools were mm. opened, it's estimated that about 150,000 children mm. were like indigenous children were sent to them. Mm. And between 3,000 and 6,000 of them died in residential oh schools. It's just absolutely shocking. Um, mm, that's really barbaric. Um, so that's kind of sounds like essentially cultural genocide, um, you know, trying to remove them from their own languages, less able to communicate with their families. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, it has been described by a lot of prominent um, Indigenous activists as a, as a cultural genocide. Mm. Like, I think there isn't really any other way of looking at it, but that mm. term's proved very controversial mm. in Canada. Um, and actually, like... Um, the Conservative government before um, the current Trudeau Trudeau administration mm. refused to open an investigation into um, either the missing unmurdered Indigenous women mm. or, um, you know, like residential schools, they refused to apologise for it or admit responsibility or anything like that. Mm. So it's a very contentious issue. And then on top of the residential schools, between the um, about the 1950s and the late 1970s, around 20,000 Indigenous babies were forcibly removed from their parents and they were given to white middle-class parents and yeah it's just it's absolutely shocking but and then the excuse that was often given for for removing these babies um was the poverty that they were living in but obviously the poverty was as the result of um hundreds of years of oppressive policies that aimed to um you know marginalize indigenous groups yeah i mean this is by no means a kind of new story in general yeah, absolutely. And it's mm. it's still very obvious today um, when you look at um, the um, the kind of after effect of this. So about half of Indigenous children in Canada live in poverty and suicide rates among First Nations or Indigenous communities mm. are twice the Canadian national average. And then the the effects on women are particularly um, uh, obvious. So the, the proportion of Indigenous women who have experienced some kind of violent victimization mm-hmm. is triple that of non-indigenous canadian mm-hmm. women and indigenous women in canada are five times more likely to experience a violent death than any other canadian woman mm-hmm. and altogether indigenous women and girls make up about four percent mm-hmm. of the total female population of canada but 16 percent of mm-hmm. female murder victims are indigenous mm-hmm. and this is kind of the trend generally with women of color um you know, like black women in, in America are much more likely to experience violence and things like that. So can you kind of see this precedent um, repeating itself in um, in indigenous dynamics in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. I think all, all over the world, really, you mm. see um, massive disparities in the ways in which, um, like, white women mm. and black women or indigenous women or Hispanic women mm. are treated by law enforcement and the ways in which they're... Um, kind of constructed mm. as victims. Um, so yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more later, actually, because okay. there are some mm-hmm. very interesting studies on the disparities in how white Canadian murder victims and Indigenous Canadian murder victims are depicted mm. in the media. That's really um, interesting. Yeah, and obviously mm. that really informs people's um, people's thinking and how people like mm-hmm. view these issues and how they're able to like empathise with mm. victims and things like that. And also, it's 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 obviously really hard to gather evidence about gender violence because there's so much stigma around it mm. and um, typically, like, almost all reports are underreported, you mm. know, so we're yeah. almost always underestimating the amount yeah. of violence that takes place. 
but all of the available evidence suggests that for almost every demographic, mm-hmm. um, the, the likelihood is that if a woman is attacked, her attacker will come from her community and her ethnic group. But mm-hmm. for indigenous women, they are the only group where the evidence suggests that the majority of the people who attack indigenous women are not indigenous themselves. Mm. So essentially what all of this adds up to is an epidemic of missing or murdered indigenous women in Canada. Mm. And in terms of the numbers, the the Royal Canadian Mounted Police have officially counted about 1,200 cases over the past three decades. But then research by the Native Women's um, Association of Canada suggests that the total is about 4,000. And obviously, yeah, there's there's mm. no way of ever knowing the, the total number, really, mm. which is which is shocking in itself. Mm. So where does this tend to happen? How how are these um, men from outs- or attackers, um, we'll say men, um, how are they kind of infiltrating um, these communities? How are they getting access to Indigenous women to, um, to hurt them, basically? Mm. Well, there are a lot of circumstances that make indigenous women particularly vulnerable mm. so for example one of the i think perhaps the the series of murders that people in the uk mm. might have been more might be more likely to have heard of mm-hmm. is the the highway of tears murders yeah. mm-hmm. um so the highway of tears refers to highway 16 which is this mm. road that goes through british columbia and then it goes over to the pacific ocean it's really really long and it goes through a lot of first nations communities mm. and a lot of women and girls have vanished or, or turned up dead along particularly one stretch of the road, and that's mm. the part that the residents call the Highway of Tears. And mm. there are a lot of different reasons for that. So partly, Indigenous communities are less likely to have access to mm. um, reliable transport, so people don't necessarily have cars. Um, you know, the, the public transport isn't very good. It's a very mm. remote area. So a lot of people hitchhike mm. um, along that highway, and obviously that makes them very vulnerable. Um, so actually since 1969, official figures say that 18 women have been murdered on that stretch of highway, but mm. then again, community activists and relatives of, of missing people say that they believe the total number of women who've been murdered along the Highway of Tears is about 50, mm. and almost all of the cases are still unsolved. Mm. And so how come there's not kind of the the literal evidence of these murders? Um, where does that go? Well, firstly... Obviously, a, a lot, like a lot of communities of colour, mm. um, Indigenous communities in Canada often have quite a contentious relationship with the right. police because they've often experienced um, like discrimination and mm. violence at the, at the hands of law enforcement. Mm. So a lot, of, um, a lot of people perhaps don't report when a loved one goes missing because they, they feel like the police just won't help um, mm. or like, you know, they, they won't be listened to or anything like that. Mm. So there's definitely a problem with underreporting. And then mm. also just with the area in, in which these disappearances are, are taking place, mm. there's a lot of wild animals. And, mm. you know, if if a body is like disposed of, then firstly, just the, the size of the area is, mm. makes it very difficult to find. And then also... Um, the the evidence will be gone mm. quite quickly um, mm. because of um, you know like wild animals in the area, which is horrible to think of, mm. isn't it? Being eaten by bears. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Just so grim, mm. so grim. Um, so yeah, the police are often very, usually very mm. ineffective in, in investigating these. So for example, with the um, like Highway of Tears murders, mm. the police 
often they just immediately deemed the women's deaths to be suicides or drug overdoses or accidents. And then some of the women were sex workers, although the police say that a large number of them are right. sex workers and then they actually are because it's a way of, um, you know, reducing the empathy that, that people feel for them in a yeah. way of saying, well, you know, they just, mm. they asked for it or whatever. Yeah. So this is an interesting case as well to look at how sex workers are treated and the portrayal of sex workers um, by the police force. And so what, how come these are considered less seriously or, um, you know, taken to be less important? I think... What you see, well, not just in Canada, but, you know, all over the world with Mm. the way that the police um, treat sex workers is that, um, you know, they're they're often just further marginalised. So, for example, during the Yorkshire Ripper murders in the Mm. UK, what we saw was um, the police started handing out more and more fines to Mm. um, women who were, um, um, like, on on the streets working in prostitution. Mm. And um, then, because they were being given those fines, they had to... Mm you know, go back on the street to to pay them afterwards. And yeah. it was just putting them further at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than having any kind of compassion or, or common sense towards sex workers, they're often just, um, you know, assumed to essentially be asking for, yeah. you know, any violence that they encounter because mm-hmm. they're, they're seen as living a high-risk lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it's 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 also interesting. Like, there is there are a lot of cases in Canada where... Indigenous women who go missing mm-hmm. and you know aren't aren't known to be sex workers. You know right. their their friends and family say they say they aren't sex workers. Mm. Will still be described as sex workers in mm. the media yeah. portrayals of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a kind of key example of the the hypersexualization that mm. like Indigenous and and Black women mm. face in in North America. Mm. It's very kind of insidiously moralizing, isn't it? The the idea of reporting someone's murder in a newspaper in a way that and it makes you feel like they were sort of either inevitably going to be murdered or was some way kind of out there looking for it. It's, yeah, very cruel. Yeah, absolutely. Just kind of mm. othering them so that, yeah. you know, you think, well, this isn't part of, mm. this isn't part of my world. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, like, really reducing sympathy for the yeah. victims. Um, it's, I think it's also important to note that the police are usually very like ineffective mm-hmm. um and uncaring and often callous in dealing with the disappearances of like indigenous women but actually um there's a huge amount of work that has been done is still being done by by missing women's families and by indigenous communities mm-hmm. um so organizing searches raising awareness and um you know in in, in manitoba mm-hmm. a group of indigenous women set up this initiative called drag the red where mm-hmm. they actually go out and search the waters mm-hmm. of the Red River for human remains, human remains, to try mm-hmm. and bring like closure to, um, to families whose loved ones have gone missing. Mm-hmm. Because often it's just very even if a person mm-hmm. is presumed dead if they're indigenous, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to persuade police to even mm-hmm. properly look for for the body, mm-hmm. so that you can get closure. That's very like the group of women who were searching for remains in Chile when after the disappearances in Chile. Um, yeah, this group of women um, are kind of scouring the desert for remains because, yeah, it's it's very important. It's um, when these stories have been kind of completely ignored and erased, looking for some kind of physical, tangible evidence is often something really comforting. Yeah, it's always it's always women who you know yeah. take. Um, you know, agency and display, right. like, just enormous amounts of courage yeah, and strength yeah. in the light of mm. these kind of atrocities, isn't it? Like, mm. it's just, 
it's um it's incredible to mm. see. Yeah. And then another quite high profile series of murders were um by this serial killer called mm. Robert Picton. He was he was convicted in two thousand seven actually, so it's quite recent. Mm. And he's believed to have killed about fifty women, and at least thirty three of those women were indigenous. Mm. And actually, just it's a really good example of how the police just don't really care yeah. about missing indigenous women because they mm. were actually first given a tip off about Robert Picton in, in 1998 and right. he even had a record, a police record for mm. imprisoning and attempting to stab a sex worker on his farm but they didn't even search his farm until four years later and in that time he'd killed 14 more women. God. So in, in 2010 there was an investigation into the police's conduct that focused a lot on, on the Robert Picton case mm. and they found that the the Robert Picton investigation was marked by very deep bias against the victims mm-hmm. because they were mostly indigenous and poor and some of them used drugs. Mm-hmm. So they were just seen as, as normal collateral damage, really. Right, yeah, it's this asking for it narrative all over again. Yeah, absolutely. And there have been some really interesting investigations on the, on the media coverage mm-hmm. of these sort of murders. So, mm-hmm. for example, with the... Highway of Tears murders, a lot of newspapers only began to to cover the murders, even though they'd been happening mm. since the late 60s, really. And, mm-hmm. you know, local people knew about them and had mm. been trying to raise awareness about them. But newspapers, mm. national newspapers, only really began to cover them when Nicole Hoare, who was white, um, disappeared on the Highway of Tears in 2002. And she wasn't the first, she wasn't the first white victim, but mm. up until then, the victim's ethnic background hadn't really been published. So people had just assumed that she was the first white victim and they'd assumed everyone before that was mm-hmm. indigenous. They didn't really care about it. Mm. And obviously the amount and type of news coverage that is devoted to victims of crimes depends on a lot of things. And when it right. comes to violence against women, as we've seen time and time again, there's mm. this coded kind of hierarchy mm. of victims that's based yeah. on on these racist and misogynistic ideas about deservingness and about value mm. And then traditionally these these narratives around middle class white women have kind of constructed them mm. as a group that's that's pure or worthy of protection, mm. whereas black or Hispanic or indigenous women are often portrayed in very hypersexual ways and they're much more likely to be viewed as bad victims or as having deserved what happened to them. Mm. So I think race is definitely one of the primary factors in t- determining how a woman will be viewed as a victim of crime. But then, you know, there are also loads of others aren't there so if a woman experiences gender violence um she'll generally be viewed with much less sympathy if she'd been drinking or using drugs or was used provocatively or if she was a sex worker and um this is not just for women of color this is kind of all um sex-based violence and all violence misogynistic um violence and gendered violence but um kind of particularly in the case of these hypersexualized um demographic groups um and the race of the perpetrator also plays a big role in kind of media characterizations of the crime, doesn't it? Because these murders, as you mentioned before, um, are quite unique in the fact that they're not uh, most of the the people perpetrating these are uh, not from not indigenous. Um, so I I've previously looked at the media portrayal of perpetrators mm. and um, how uh, specifically how um, a refugee. Um, someone believed of um, murdering uh, an old white woman um, in this country was portrayed um, in two different newspapers. And the idea was kind of making this man not just 
an individual who's committed a crime, but a representative of his entire kind of demographic um, in a very racist way. Um, but I guess in this in this situation, if there's no opportunity to demonize a man of color, it tends to go unnoticed. The white man is seems to be protected at every turn. Um, you only need to look at like Brock Turner and that kind of thing to see how newspapers just kind of vigorously protect the white man. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, in this case, it's primarily, if not almost mm. exclusively, white men killing right. um, or abducting yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, indigenous women. And I, I assumed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, mm. and so because, because white men are seen as like an mm. unmarked category, they're almost seen as like right. the default, aren't they? Yeah. So it's just not really mm. um, reported on and they're not like racialized in the same way. Mm-hmm. Are there some examples of how the media have reported on a white woman's death and an indigenous woman's death that you could maybe go into? Yeah, actually, there's been um, there was a really fantastic study by a professor called Kristen Gilchrist. It was a really wonderful article in the Journal of Feminist Media Studies. I'll link it on the Instagram. Mm. It was called Newsworthy Victims, and essentially it it compared the news coverage of the disappearance of six mm. women in Canada, and three of them were indigenous women. Um, Darlene Bossy, Melanie Guedes, and Amber Redman, and, and then three were white women, mm-hmm. um, Ardith Wood, Alicia Ross, and Jennifer Teague. And all of the women were in their late teens or 20s. All of them were students or they had jobs. All of them had stable family relationships. None of them were sex workers. So she essentially, she established race as the key variable mm-hmm. here. And then she analyzed the, the local and national media coverage okay. of these murders. So she found that the white women who were murdered were mentioned six times more in the local press Mm. than indigenous women. And articles about the white women were longer than the articles about indigenous women. Mm. And then articles about the white women were more likely to be on the front page of the newspaper. Um, And headlines about the indigenous women were, they were mostly quite impersonal. So they were less likely to mention them by name. So it's Mm. things like um, uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police identifies woman's remains or mm. um, or another example was teen's mm-hmm. family keeping vigil. But then in contrast, the headlines about the white women mostly referred to them by name and they often included, you know, quotes from heartfelt messages from their friends and family. So mm. as some examples that she gave were um, Ardith Woods um, lives in the light of God and Jenny, we love you, we miss you, things like that. So, mm. you know, very like personal um, kind of messages that are, really going to like elicit sympathy from mm. the, um, and like an, elicit an, mm. an emotional response from yeah. the reader. It's almost like presenting these women as part of the community of the reader of the newspaper, whereas the kind of indigenous women are people who are, you know, not like us, who don't exist in our community, who aren't a kind of extension of our family and friends and the people that we should be caring about. Yeah, exactly. That it's just, it's, mm. it's othering them and they're just these mm. nameless, um, nameless women who, you know, you don't have to worry about essentially. Right. Mm. Um, and then also the the articles about the white women, they included lots of quotes from loved ones saying how how beautiful and kind they were. And they included, mm. you know, like you said, it included lots of details about their lives, even if those details weren't relevant to the case. So it made them seem more relatable to, to a newspaper reader. Right. Yeah. And when you present someone like that, it creates a greater imperative to stop the problem because obviously... I mean, newspapers trade on fear, and I guess the idea is that by presenting white women like this, it's, like, more urgent to the reader because it's, you know, someone like me, this happened to someone like me, and there's a greater drive to action than someone who exists, kind of, this this won't happen to me because I'm not a sex worker, because I'm not an Indigenous woman, because I don't put myself in those situations, um, which is obviously totally false. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then also another another kind of important thing she found is that articles about the murdered Indigenous women were they were much less likely to include photos, mm. and then if they if they did include photos, they were much smaller than the mm. the photos in the in the articles about the white women, mm. and that's a that's a big thing as well in mm. in determining how you feel about about a crime or about a person that's being right. reported on. You yeah. know, if you see a big photo of them like smiling mm. with their friends or something, mm. it it makes them real. It makes them human, mm. and when you know, an, an article about, um, about a missing Indigenous woman just includes, um, like, a, a passport-sized photo, then yeah. obviously that, yeah. you know, says a lot about how, how the, the newspaper perceives mm. her value and how they think that their, their readers will perceive her value mm. as well. Yeah, yeah. So there was a big report that came out recently about this um, by the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls um, at the beginning of June. Um, do you know a bit more about that? Yeah, so I was actually just about to um yeah, I was about to mention that it was called the report was called Reclaiming Power in Place. Mm. And it was it's very interesting. It's caused quite a lot of um controversy in Canada because it said that the epidemic of missing and murdered women um amounted to a Canadian genocide. Right. Which I mm. think um it's been quite contentious, but I think if you look at the definition of genocide, then you know, genocide isn't necessarily like an act, it's a it's a process and mm. The report found that mm. um, it said, quote, that, that state actions and inactions rooted in colonialism and colonial ideologies were responsible for the mm. epidemic of missing women. Mm. Um, and then it had 231 recommendations, which mm. is fantastic. And mm. actually, um, because of the uh, because of the nature of the report, um, they're technically legally binding, but obviously it's to be determined whether they'll be they, whether they'll be implemented or not, but mm. they were very wide ranging. So it's things like giving indigenous languages official status and mm. investing in early childhood programs for indigenous youth and creating universal basic income programs. Mm. So just really policies that are aimed at addressing the continued marginalization of mm. indigenous communities in a mm. in a much wider sense yeah and i guess given that this is about um you know kind of early childhood programs not directly related to to murder um it sort of shows how these sort of things don't really happen in a vacuum they're really the result of generational marginalization Thank you for listening to this episode of Criminology for You. Um, as always, we'll link interesting resources and um, our sources and some further reading on our Instagram page. Um, another key resource to um, mention is that CBC Canada, on their website, they have an archive of missing and murdered Indigenous women. A lot of the cases are still unsolved. They have about 300 on there and lots of details about the women's backgrounds, their lives, details of the case, that sort of thing. So that's definitely something to check out. But until next time, goodbye.